I want you to read this statement with me in Mark 12 and verse 34. Please join me. And when Jesus saw that he answered discreetly, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And so Jesus here compares entering God's kingdom to a journey. In fact, do you know that all of history is on a journey? All of history is moving to that great and final day in which the kingdom of God will come to this earth. Remember how Jesus told us in that most famous prayer, we are to pray, thy kingdom come. And just as uh, on an earthly journey we have to take physical steps, so in journeying to the kingdom of God, we have to take spiritual steps. And this morning, I just want us to think together, what are those steps? What are the steps that are necessary if we are to enter into the kingdom of God? Well, this morning in this encounter that Jesus has with a scribe who was an expert in the Old Testament law, we're going to see exactly that as we look with Jesus at this journey to the kingdom. Would you take your Bibles and turn with me to Mark chapter 12? It's page 1009 in the chair Bible in front of you. And I want to read for us these wonderful verses and this amazing encounter with Jesus. And I want you to think about this. What did Jesus mean when he made this curious expression, you are not far from the kingdom? Listen to God's word. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another. And seeing that he answered them well, asked him, which is here, O Israel, most important of all? Jesus answered, the most important is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, Teacher, you are right. You have truly said that he is one and, is there, and there is no other besides him. And to love him with all the heart and all the understanding, with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. Let's pray for a moment. Lord, today this question about the kingdom of God and the journey that all of history is on to the great and climactic day when we will finally see our prayer answer uh, an important, thy kingdom come. That could be no more uh, an important question for every man, woman, boy, and girl who is here today. Am I in the kingdom? Have I taken the steps that are necessary to be sure that when the kingdom comes, 
I will belong to the king and enter in with him. How important this is, Lord, today. And I pray that you would guide us carefully as Jesus, the master teacher, shows us the steps to his wonderful kingdom. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I want you to notice that this first step in this encounter is a step that is about Jesus. And what we have to be willing to say and conclude is, He has the answers. You will notice that this scribe apparently had been listening in on the conversations that had occurred with Jesus and other groups in Judaism who had come to ask him questions. And so he saw that Jesus answered them very, very well. Now, who were scribes? Well, they were experts in the Mosaic law. And what is interesting about chapters compared to the others who had come in the previous verses and chapters was his openness in contrast to their closed minds. As we have been following Jesus and we're now in the midst of Holy Week, we have seen a number of groups that have come and have asked him questions. Uh, we saw the Sanhedrin back in chapter 11, and they asked Jesus an insincere question because they had rejected his authority. Then we saw the Pharisees and the Herodians, and they came, and they asked Jesus a trick question because they wanted to alienate his followers. Then remember the, the Sadducees? They came with a foolish question, didn't they? And they wanted to make Jesus look ridiculous. Now, all of these groups that were so common in first century Judaism had several things in common. Their minds were made up about Jesus, weren't they? They were not interested in the facts. They were more desirous of holding on to power and their position than finding the truth. And they were unwilling to humble themselves and acknowledge the superior wisdom of Jesus. But the scribe, he saw Jesus' answers for what they were, brilliant response 32, he said, that were the truth. Did you notice what he said down in verse 32? He said, teacher, you are right. You are right. He was teachable. He was open-minded. And he was humble enough to concede that Jesus was right. Uh, by the way, that's rare in a debate, isn't it? I mean, most times when people come together in a debate, they already have their minds made up. And they come to the debate not looking for additional truth, but they come with the intention of proving that they already have the answer and the person on the other side is wrong. But this scribe was different. He came with the understanding that Jesus has the answers. Let me ask, do we have that approach to Jesus today through His Word? Is that our approach? Uh, that demands uh, humility. It demands a willingness to set aside preconceived notions. And it demands a desire to let Jesus speak. And I wonder, is that how we are this morning? 
If we come to the Word of God in humility, are we Jesus, our preconceived notions, and let Jesus speak? You may recall uh, one day Jesus was teaching. And he was teaching on some very difficult things. He described himself as the, the bread of life who had come down from heaven. And a lot of his followers who had eaten of the loaves the day before, they said, this is a very hard teaching. Who can understand it? And they began to withdraw from him. And you remember what Jesus did? He turned to the apostles and he said, are you going to leave me too? And remember what Peter said? Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. You have the words of eternal life. The ultimate answers are always from Jesus. Amen this morning? Yes, they are. Now, here's a second step as we follow in this conversation. Secondly, we learn that the second step is about God. And here's what God desires. He desires a relationship. A relationship. Do you know these scribes were such experts in the Mosaic Moses? Counted up all of the commands in the first five books of Moses. If you were to start at uh, Genesis and count all the way to Deuteronomy, guess how many commands you would find? 613. 613. 365 negative commands. 248 positive commands. Uh, how many of you think you could remember all of those? Neither could the scribes. Because it was impossible to keep track of all 613 commands, what they would do is try to distinguish between the weightier commands in the law and the lighter commands in the law. And since in their minds salvation depended upon keeping the law, they debated which commands were the most critical. Now, did you know what Jesus did here? He cuts through all of that. He cuts through all of that, and he says, God's law is not a way to gain merit like a grocery list. I want you to think about what it's like to go to the store with a grocery list. And we have this list, and maybe there are a whole lot of items on it. And as we are going through the store, we want to make sure that we get everything. Finally, when we, uh, we check them off one at a time. And then finally, when we uh, deposit it all in our car, and we get home, and particularly if we are a man and our wife is wondering, did we get it all? We're so relieved. We, see, we feel so good that we didn't miss anything. Now, God's law is not like that. Jesus said that God's law is not about gaining merit, but rather it is about showing love. Now here in verses 29 and 30, uh, Jesus quotes from Deuteronomy 6, 4 and 5. Let's read together these very important words that Jesus quotes to this man 
as the man says to him, what's the most important of the commandments? How do you weigh in on this whole issue of what is the greater versus what is the lesser? Let's read Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5 together. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. This is known in Israel as it is the main, it comes from the first word here, which is the Hebrew word Shema. It is the major creed of Israel. In fact, today in the synagogues, this creed is uh, still expressed in Jewish worship. Now, I want you to notice two things. God said the Lord is one. What that means is He is unique. He is the only true God who is above all else. The second thing the Shema says is the Lord is our God. He's the covenant God who had given Himself in love to His people, Israel. And so notice what this is saying. Because of who God is, and because of what God has done, He is to be loved wholeheartedly by His people. Then in verse 31 here, Jesus quotes another Old Testament verse, Leviticus 19 and verse 18. Let's read this verse together as well. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself, I am the Lord. Now follow what's going on here. Since people are made in God's image, then all of God's command are to love them as well. So here's what Jesus is saying. All of God's commandments boil down to two things, loving God and loving people. Now here's something we dare not miss. No rabbi had ever summarized the Ten Commandments in this way. Jesus was the very first. He was the very first. In 100 B.C., there was an unknown writer in Judaism, and he linked the two together. He said, love God and love your neighbor. But no one had ever taken these two verses that we have read from Deuteronomy and Leviticus, put them together link them as one commandment with two particular facets until Jesus. What an incredible thing this is. No one had ever said what we now understand is the meaning of the Ten Commandments of God. This little diagram here is is very, very helpful. Because what it reminds us is this, God is love. And love, what he is doing is he is seeking a relationship. And so the very first four commandments, they are Godward commandments. They are how we love God. And then the next six commandments, they are human word. They are how we love people. 
And so as we begin to understand what Jesus is saying, what this poster says is exactly true and why God gave us the Ten Commandments. He intended them to be laws of love and laws of liberty. They are the way that we show love and they liberate us from selfishness so that we can love. And properly understood, they don't restrict us. Instead, they liberate us. Now, this principle that Jesus is teaching is really found throughout the whole Bible. Uh, Perhaps you know that uh, the Apostle John is known as the Apostle of Love, and he speaks a lot in his writings about love. Let's read what he says in 1 John 5.3. Read what he says which is the teaching of the whole Bible. Join me. For this and His love of God, that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not burdensome. Now notice what this is saying. Loving God and keeping His commandments are synonymous And anyone who understands that knows that God's commandments then could not be burdensome because they lead us to the very blessings that God had for us when He gave them in the beginning. Now, I learned some very important things here, and and I think Jesus is teaching us some very wonderful things about the law of God. And I want us to see these very clearly this morning because they are so important if we are to understand this journey to the kingdom that Jesus wants us to follow on. Here's the first thing that Jesus is clearly teaching. The law is about relationships. The law ultimately is about relationships. You see, God desires a relationship with us, but because He is a holy God, we can only enjoy Him if we are holy. And now we begin to understand then why there is a necessity. No other gods be the commandments that He's given. For example, think of the first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. If it were not for that commandment, we would have other gods that we would love And therefore, we would miss loving the true God. Or think of the second commandment. You shall not have any graven images. Don't make any idols. The very last word of of John in 1 John is, My little children, keep yourselves from idols. And if we ask the question why, well, it's very simple. All images of God are made like the image makers. Every image of God distorts the nature of God and therefore corrupts our relationship with Him. So of course we can have no images of God because that would keep us from loving God as He has revealed Himself. You see, the law is about relationships. Secondly, Jesus teaches us this. The right relationship with God leads to a right relationship with people. That follows absolutely. If we love God, 
outcome will be that we will love people who are made in his image. And clearly, if we love people, we will not sin against them. Think about this for just a moment. Why are we called not to steal? Do you know some time ago a a survey was conducted and 64% of customers admitted eating food in stores they don't pay for? By the way, don't raise your hand here if you've ever done that. Okay? But can you imagine? 64% of people admitted eating food in a grocery store that they have never paid for. We know that theft costs owners of stores multiplied millions of dollars in our country per year. And not only is that not loving towards the owner, but then they often have to raise prices to cover their losses, so it affects all of us. See, if we love others, we won't steal. Or think about the commandment against murder. If we truly loved children, would there be over 3,000 abortions a day in this country, in modern-day America? Would there be? Obviously not. And to have the same want all children, regardless of the circumstances they are conceived in, to have the same chance at life that we have. Or think about lying. Can you imagine if everyone in our country told the truth, the courts would not be chock full of trials trying to discover the truth? Imagine the enormous amount of money that it costs in terms of litigation in our country to try to find out what the truth was. And imagine all the money that would be saved if everyone all the time was 100% truthful. You see, lying ultimately affects us all. And we can begin to see now God's great wisdom. The right relationship with God leads to a right relationship with people. Notice thirdly, number three, and this is perhaps as important as all, and I'm going to ask Jim there to make sure that he clicks the screen for me so I can bring this up, all right? Here we go. Have you got it there, Jim? Click the one on the other side. There we go. You know what all that was for? Jim and I had that all worked out, all right? But look at that. The law is impossible to obtain. Did you see that Jesus says our love for God must involve a total commitment? Look again at it in verse 30. He says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength. Did you count how many times Jesus said all? How many? Four. What that means is it's total, complete, holding nothing back. We are to give 110% commitment to God because of who He is and what He's done. He deserves that kind of commitment. And then did you notice it covers every facet of our being? Our heart is our control center. 
Our soul is our inner life from which all of the issues of life flow. The mind is our thoughts and our decisions, and the strength is our body and our actions. What is this saying? That we are to give a comprehensive giving of ourselves in obedience to Him every day, in every conceivable way, all the time, every day, all the way. How many of us do that? Because I sure don't. None of us do. In fact, if we're honest, we fail many times. And this is why we need Jesus. Jesus could say in John 8, 29, I always do those things that please the Father. Always do I please the Father. And he lived a perfect life of righteousness. And then he offered that life to God on the cross. And there is the perfect Son of God giving a perfect life in our place. He died for us that we might be forgiven. And then he rose again that he, the perfect sacrifice, might be our substitute, our mediator, so that this holy God would accept us. And then when we trust that Savior... He comes into our life, He forgives us, and He now begins to live in us this new life that for us is impossible to obtain. Do you know what elements were never gained? Jesus is teaching us. The Ten Commandments were never given to show us how good we are. Rather, they were given to show us how bad we are and how much we need a Savior and how if we are to have a relationship with the God who loves us, it must be through that Savior that He has sent. How wonderful is this teaching by Jesus? But I want you to notice one more thing here. There's one final step. Finally, number three is a step about religion. And it should lead us to Jesus, not be a substitute for Him. It should lead us to Jesus not become a substitute for him. When the scribe said in verse 32, you are right, teacher, you have truly said, he revealed that he was very impressed with what we have just seen Jesus was teaching. He said it was right, and he indicated he would... But then he added something that indicated he was tracking right with Jesus. Did you notice what he added? Look down at verse 33. And to love him with all the heart, with all the understanding, and with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself. Now notice what the scribe added is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. 
Jesus hadn't said that, had He? This scribe says, loving God and loving your neighbor is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. Now, do you know the Old Testament teaches this in many places? It's taught in Hosea 6.6. 6. It's taught in 1 Samuel 15.22. And so as Jesus was teaching and this man listened to Jesus, he made a connection with those verses. He got this right. Do you know what got it wrong? First century Judaism. First century Judaism said Jewish ritual is more important than attitude entering heaven. In fact, they said religious ritual is more important than attitude. Ceremony is more important than morality. The scribe here now says, no, a right relationship with God is more important than religious rituals. Do you know what he understood? He understood that God gave the entire Old Testament religion to lead to God, not to replace Him. And what the Jews had tragically done is substituted their religion for God Himself. Let me ask you a question. Does that happen today? Does that happen today? Of course it does. Do you know that during World War II, many Nazi sympathizers went to church while their Jewish neighbors were sent to the concentration camps? And you say, how is that possible? How can you go to it while your Jewish sermon pray to the living God while your Jewish neighbors are disappearing all around you and you don't bother to find out what's really going on? Do you know down in Guantanamo Bay in Cuba, there are still terrorists that are interred there? Do you know they read the Quran? They participate in daily prayer, and they refuse to eat pork according to the dictates of their religion. And you say to yourself, what good is all of that when you are a murderer, right? You see, they're substituting their religion for God Himself. Or think of our own country. Slave owners at one time in our country would go to church, much like we are here today. Listen to a sermon, read God's Word, give money, and then they would support the buying and selling of human beings. Say, how in the world slave blocks? And you say, how in the world could they do that? Well, they had substituted their religion for loving God and loving 
people. You see, if our religious practice does not lead us to love God and love people, it has become a substitute. And that's what this scribe understood. Now, why did Jesus then make this very curious statement? You are not far from the kingdom of God. Why did he make that statement? This scribe had come a long way. He understood Jesus has the answers. He understood that God is after a relationship. But he still was not in the kingdom. And Jesus said, you, uh, you're, you're pretty close. You're not far. But what was the problem? It was very clear. He needed to take one more step, didn't he? He needed to understand the man who was talking to him was the God who was seeking a relationship with him. And he needed to understand, Jesus, that all of the Old Testament ultimately pointed towards Jesus was fulfilled in him that he was its goal and its end and he had one more step to take. He needed to trust Jesus as his Lord and Savior. By the way, there's one curious thing that is missing here. Did you notice that? The Bible doesn't tell us whether he took that step. We don't know the outcome. Did he trust Christ as his Lord and Savior, or did he not? Have you noticed that? And we ask the question, why? Why? It's because Jesus wants you and I to face the same issue. You might be here with a wonderful Christian background. You have been taught all of the things that Christians should be taught. And you are very, very close to entering into the kingdom of God. But there's one important step yet to take of surrendering to Christ and trusting Him as Lord and Savior. And one of the sad, sad realities of life is there are multitudes of people who have come very, very close. They have all the training, all the knowledge, all the background. But they have never taken the final step with Jesus. And it is possible to come ever so close to the kingdom of God, but to miss it to miss it in the end. When I graduated from college, there was a popular singing group by the name of the Imperials. And in 1979, they came out with a very, very interesting song. It was called Old Buddha. Some of you may remember that song. And let me give you this morning a couple of verses from that song with just a 
a little bit of editing meaning. Here are two verses. You can call yourself a Presbyterian and not be born again. An Episcopalian or a Methodist and still die in your sin. You can even be Baptist with amens and praise the Lord's. But if you hate your brother, you'll not be part of the chosen ones. Now, I don't hate anybody, so please don't take me wrong. But there really is a message in this simple song. You see, there's only one way, Jesus, if eternal life is your goal and meditation of the mind, it won't save your soul. And that song is teaching us exactly what Jesus is saying here. If our religion becomes a substitute for a real relationship with Christ, in the end, it will fail us. You are not far from the kingdom of God, says Jesus. You've come very close. Why not take, why not take the final step, right? Why not take the final step? Let's bow together. As our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed, and we're just before the Lord this morning, this question of whether this man took the final step or not is left open. And it's left open for a powerful reason that you and I would make sure that we have taken it ourselves. And this morning, before we close with a wonderful song that teaches us that we can belong to Christ, I just wonder where you are at today. Maybe you've had a wonderful background with wonderful Christian teaching. But maybe you are depending upon that Maybe that's the living Christ, or substitute for a real relationship with the living Christ. And what a tragedy it would be if on the day that God's kingdom does come, you would find that you are shut out because you had never taken the final step and closed with Jesus. Every pastor grieves over people he has ministered to for many years who are in this very situation. And this morning, I would just offer to you once again the offer that Jesus gives. Whoever believes my word and believes in Him who has sent me, has eternal life.
and shall not come into condemnation, but has passed from death unto life. And that's what Jesus wants for you. That you would pass out of death and into life and know that you are in His kingdom. Say something like this, if you're unsure of where you stand, Lord Jesus, I understand that it is impossible for me to keep your law. I have not obeyed you perfectly, comprehensively, giving you total commitment, holding nothing back, which I know is what you fully deserve. And I know that I stand condemned before a holy God. But Lord Jesus, I believe that you are who you said you are. I believe that you were sent into this world to live a perfect life, to die for me, to rise again, that I might have a perfect righteousness given to me with forgiveness and a new life. And you could say something like this. Lord Jesus, I repent. I turn from my own way. And I turn to You. Come into my life and be my Savior. Come into my heart and be my Lord. Forgive me of all my sins. Give to me eternal life. Making on the promise... And now, standing on the promise of Your Word, I will now follow You with all of my heart, God helping me. You may say, thank You, Lord Jesus, for saving me. Father, I pray today that people who have been not far from the kingdom of God would enter that kingdom today. And I thank You for this beautifully constructed, true encounter that is designed to make us think about whether we really know the living God through His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we thank You that He's done it all for us. We thank You that He has fulfilled everything the Old Testament said and pointed that He is. We thank You that He is alive today that He is King reigning and ruling, that He is planning to return, and someday we will hear the shout, the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of His Christ, and He shall rule forever and ever. We look forward with great anticipation to that wonderful day. Thank you that the day of grace remains open. For Jesus' sake we pray. Amen.